Um, all right, everyone, welcome back to another awesome episode of Mask Off. I'm sitting here with my good friend Dan. Um, I'm going to let him introduce himself in a second, but former college friend, and uh, we just had to get him on the podcast and get his wonderful and unique take. Um, uh, we see you out there, like just on Twitter, just giving everybody everything, all the love that we need, the content we need, really. Uh, but why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself for the audience, tell people what you got going on right now and kind of what you're into. Yeah, so I am Dan Holmes Fountain. I guess Daniel Edward Holmes Fountain, if we're doing the full Ooh, name. We're uh, doing full name. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Full, full government for the folks. Uh, currently, I am a 2L, uh, so my second year of law school at the FAMU University College of Law um, <laughs> down in Florida. You know, the greatest HBSCU to ever exist. Um, but yeah, that's it. My, my, that's my whole entire life for the last two years has strictly been dedicated to law school only. Um, so my life is very much so boring outside of that, obviously with that aspect, but outside of anything else, like law school has absolutely taken over who I am as a person. I totally get it. I feel like that was me. I'm, I, my roommate at the time, um, when I was in Florida, um, we were in Tallahassee at Florida State, um, and uh, I don't know, like two years, just two years alone, I was just like, oh wow, this is like really intense. But then I also have a couple friends that have been in law school, like yourself included, that have been talking mm-hmm. about it, and I was like, at least I'm not doing that. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but like I said, it's great to have you on, um, definitely want to chop it up a bit, but I'm curious for you. Um, I know that you mentioned law school pretty online for like, what seems like the end of times for the most, Mm -hmm. (laughs) most part, um, how's that experience been for you? And have you just been, I don't know, I just, how how have you been making it through? Like we, I feel like we escaped 2020, but like, it still feels like we still there even though it's a new year it's like what happened so have you just been doing have you been coping all that stuff uh so primarily i mean like everyone else i was excited when covid first struck because i was like oh a couple days off from school right before (laughs) spring break this is gonna be live um but slowly but surely it just really got deep into me because i have adhd and when i was confined to just my house a 600 square foot uh, apartment that I shared with, you know, another guy from law school, I really started to go crazy. Um, But then I realized how much I actually kind of could do by myself and what I really needed to do. Um, I had been torture reading for law school for months at that point that I forgot that I actually liked real reading, like for pleasure. Right, right. I started reading books more. Um, I started going outside and climbing trees again. (laughs) uh just like i'm telling you dude any tree i could find in the orlando area i was climbing it uh long bike rides and things like that um but besides that just realist like real deal praying and then making sure my relationships weren't feathering during law like during law school for one and then during covid um because i'm I'm very much so an isolationist already with regular life but once like the world was also isolating i was like wait you know this is a little there's a different kind of isolation. Um, so real deal, yeah, that, that's about it. I got you. I got you. Um, I feel like very, very similar. Like for me, I feel like I also like once the box or the walls started closing in, because I'm like extremely extroverted, right? Um, yeah. And so I was just like, 
okay you know this is a little time i could start reflecting you know i could start like <laughs> doing just a little reading for pleasure you know i just finished grad yep. school um i was still stressed out initially because you know i was still looking for a job but like after a while i was just like wow i wonder what other people are doing <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> what it's like to be with other people um <laughs> And then, like, for me, one thing that I've just definitely had to manage, especially uh, since uh, just, like, the election and, like, uh, every... Oh, yeah. Yeah, since then, it's just, like, I have to consume social media at a at a pace. Um, yeah. And so I was, like, so, like, now I'm much better about it, especially, like, on Twitter and stuff like that. I'll just, like, be there, like, throw a couple of retweets and, you know, I can call it a day. Mm-hmm. But there was a point where I was just, like, scrolling for, like, hours <laughs> on end, and I was, like... <laughs> Is the world any different? And it's like it's not. Yeah, it's not. Yeah. I know. I, I know you're an avid uh, tweeter, and so I'm. I'm curious. What was your? Uh, I know we've probably like even like commented on similar things like this before. Uh, but in the same line of like the podcast, I remember all of 2020. Like, just random. Like Twitter is always filled with like random shit. But I remember yeah. like there were just like these phases of like black men toxicity and like these mm-hmm. random things that would show up. I remember on the first episode of the podcast, I was talking to uh, my friend and my guest that I had on. And I was talking about how there was just this like one episode of like uh, somebody tweeted a black man that tweeted out. Um, Ladies, if your guy out here drinking lemonade with pulp, you can't trust it. He's not a real man. And I was like, wait, what? <laughs> wait, what? So I'm curious, like, what's your what's your take on just like the Twitter sphere in 2020 and like black men and our like I don't know if it was to cope or like what we were doing out there, but I was just like, what's happening? <laughs> oh my god. 2020 for Twitter was such a iconic time, I think, because for for once, like Twitter, I feel has always been accessory, quick, you know, tweet here and there. Most of the time, we're just literally journaling online, speaking to ourselves, but we kind of invite other people to talk. But you're right, like that entire time was ridiculous because it really just gave people the time to just be like, you know what? I have a very half baked idea, half baked question that I know other people who are, I'm not even going to say sensitive, but just like, willing to engage with me will you know engage with me and now my my phone's buzzing and i'm talking and da, 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 da. uh so i was i was laughing i was laughing at the concept of how toxic things we found out we couldn't do we couldn't drink lemonade with pulp um what else couldn't we do uh, i had a guy i remember a guy saying it was it was um suspect quote unquote to, to wash your butt and I was just like, dude, so being, being, being dirty is just like, is that what we do with straight black men? No, like, being dirty is the real masculinity. <laughs> yeah, like it was, it was, it was incredible to me because it gave me a laugh. But then I also remembered, and it made me sad that like people really think this way to a certain degree. Uh, and whether they're kind of twitting it for for a laugh and ha-has, there are people who are agreeing, and there are people who are like silently agreeing. And then there are people who are wholeheartedly just like, yeah, like, this makes sense. I do this. Like, I think this way. And I'm just trying to figure out how do you take so many mental steps to get to right. drinking lemonade repulse makes you suspicious. <laughs> like, what? That is Wild. terrifying. Yeah, absolutely. I Wild. loved it, though. I, I loved it. <laughs> What a, a cultural um what my what one of my best friends will say, a cultural moment as well as a cultural reset. <laughs> like just yeah. that exactly what that was. Absolutely oh man. Agree. <laughs> uh 
I remember one of my favorite tweets that I still like keep in the uh I keep in the chamber at times and just send it back out anytime like something major happens. Uh and black Twitter gets like all up in arms. Uh mm. is that black Twitter shouldn't be free. Like you should pay for black oh. Twitter. Because it's just like we like we just be out here with so much good content. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but also it's just like why? Why are we like yeah. this? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. I love it. <laughs> I love the collective unconscious, it seems like, of Black people across, like, the world, too. Like, there there just seems to be this connection between a Black person where we are on the East Coast versus someone who is in the West Coast. And just there are certain, like, it just intrinsic things it seems like we all experience and know. And then we just, like, capitalize on it. Right. The funniest thing for me is the trauma. Like, something is bare bones traumatic scary we should be crying whatever whatever and people are spinning it and in a way where the trauma is still there but we're all like laughing like in the right, face right. of you know the, the defeat of the whole thing uh like similar to the january 6th like black people were having a blast uh, yeah. but also at the same time acknowledging like this is really really scary and really like hey america look at yourself right yeah. No, I de- I definitely agree. I definitely agree because it's just like one of those things where I remember we had this conversation because um, there was a decent amount of like other like black grad students in my master's program when I was in Florida. Uh, we all like come to the conclusion where I remember for uh, um, one of our classes we watched. Uh, uh, it was like a diversity and equity class within education, uh, and one of the things we watched was um, one of Dave Chappelle's like newer, newer like comedy specials. And it's like one of those things where you're like, you didn't realize you could be torn between something, and like how like laughing at certain things is very, very problematic, quote unquote problematic, or uh, just like downright traumatic and needs to be addressed yeah. in some way but then also you're like i mean like this is how black people have like made it through like all of these <laughs> yeah. things like we we like have used comedy as like a way to like i don't know feel better about situations exactly. and stuff like that because there's like certain parts like there was definitely a couple moments where like dave Chappelle would say like of course like very much a like domestic violence or like yep. a like sexual assault joke and it, you mm-hmm. know like with us especially with us coming from uh, having like worked in housing and stuff like that when we were mm-hmm. as RAs when we were undergrad, it's like this is like a very serious topic. But also like the yeah. way he says it, it's just like you want to laugh, but you also know you shouldn't laugh, and so it's just like yeah. what's going on? <laughs> Cognitive dissonance at its finest. Exactly, exactly. Uh, I loved, I, I love the idea of Dave Chappelle over the course of years because I started watching him at a very young age before I should have ever probably been allowed to. Uh, and then, like you said growing older and then being in housing we got very much so exposed to some very serious issues and it was it was definitely that cognitive dissonance of just like the way he's saying it and how it's phrased it like i want to say you're kind of conditioned to laugh right like it just it's and it's also coming from dave Chappelle. so you're like oh he's a comedian da, 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 da. Uh, but then like on the dark side of just kind of for me, at least tracing my thoughts and where these come from, I was like, oh, shoot, like, this isn't good. Like, <laughs> the fact that we kind of can laugh, like, that we can laugh about this, it's a bit scary because, like, this is actually really devastating. Um, and I, I always question, like, how much of the laughter is medicine versus just, like, laughing down and pointing down. Right. Um, 
And that's really kind of changed my perception of comedy over the last couple of years. I love punching up, but punching down is too easy, you know? Right. Um, so definitely still love Dave Chappelle, uh, just for, for mostly making fun of white people um, and white America and right. kind of the upper. But the other stuff, I'm just like, oh, shoot, like, eh. Yeah, it's Dave, like, that didn't age well. Yeah, that is... yeah, it's like, no, nah, Dave, this doesn't age well. Like, we're better than this. We're, we're beyond the need for this. Right, there right. was one, you know? Right, right. I'm curious for you, because, um, like, a big um, a big part of, like, why I started the podcast was sort of to just be able to get different perspectives from, like, Black men. I'm, all, of course, going to have a couple of, like, Black women on the mm-hmm. pod as well, and a couple of, like, gender non-conforming folks as well. And I'm curious for you, so far, everybody that I've interviewed, have, we've all grown up, lived in the South for the most part. Like, yeah. that's our inundated lives. I'm curious yeah. for you what your, if you could talk a little bit about your, your background, your perspective, like growing up as a black man, like in the North, right? Are you, orig- mm-hmm. are you originally from New York? I want to remember. I am. Yeah. yeah, Buffalo, New York. Yeah. Um, and so what's that for you? Like what it was like growing up in, as a black kid in New York and then like, coming down to like rugged old Tennessee and like now being in Florida and stuff like that. So it was, it was, it's been quite the experience, right? Because I grew up in Buffalo, New York, extremely poor, uh, single parent household for like three siblings. Um, and me being the young one, the accident, right? Right. Um, so (laughs) not the accident, (laughs) (laughs) the loving accident. So Growing up, like we were extremely poor, and with that means we never really moved about. So I never had any experience with white people at all, right? Um, until about the age of nine, when I was adopted and I moved to Connecticut. So before then, like I was little hood baby. I was running <laughs> the streets, you know, like in and out the house, nobody checking for me. Uh, coming home, literally coming home whenever I wanted, eleven, one in the morning at five, six, seven, because no one was checking for me. Right. Um, and then once I was adopted, and I know the question after is always, are your parents white? No, my actually, my adopted parents are black. Thank God. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I just want you to know, I was not, I was not thinking that, but thanks for clarifying for the listeners. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Everyone usually has that question after. Um, but I was adopted and my parents moved to, or I guess my adopted parents lived in middle class. Uh, a place called Cromwell, Connecticut, and small town, 14,000 people, but it was all white. There was like 11 of us little dots sprinkled out the town, Um, but it was all white, middle class, mostly uh, Italian, Irish, and Polish dissenting people. Um, So I spent that time from about nine to 17 in Connecticut, and it was just me trying to assimilate and fit in for the entirety of my time um, because I had this super thick, deep hood, baby New York accent. Um, so much so that when I actually got to Connecticut, I was put in, I guess it's ELA class, but it was me and a bunch of first year uh, foreign students who had just moved to America and they were trying to teach us English again. So oh. literally a, a guy from Japan, uh, two kids from Mexico, and other parts of the world whose first experience with English was there. I spoke the language. I just really was speaking Ebonics through and through. Right, right. Um, so I spent those years really reforming who I was, uh, but more so, 
once I kind of moved to the South, understood I was really just trying to assimilate and blend in. You know, I didn't want any issues. I knew kind of what the perception was about me or people that looked like me because after I began to assimilate, uh, the white people around me left their guard down. So then I became the good one and the exception. And you start kind of hearing how certain people really think and feel about people who look like you when they don't necessarily act according, like in an adjacency to their own personality. Right, right. Um, And then I moved to the South. Welcome, welcome. (laughs) (laughs) In the North, we have this very um, kind of like, I'm not going to say arrogant racism, but it's, it's a bit more nuanced and covert because a lot of Northerners cling to the idea of, well, it's the North. We fought for the slaves to be freed, you know. Right, We're not right. about this, you know, da, 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 da. I was like, yeah, okay, what about Boston? Whatever. Um, but in the... <laughs> yeah. That's the T. <laughs> yeah. But then I moved to the South, and I had never, I had never been um, on such a larger scale with, like, a larger community of people been or experienced racism. Mm-hmm. Um, so I went to Brentwood High School or Ravenwood High School in Brentwood. Brentwood's this kind of upper middle class, very once again white area. Mm-hmm. Uh, everyone comes from money. Yeah, their parents all own all these buildings and they have campuses and things like that. Um, and it was the shock of a lifetime because it was so clear how much disdain black people are held here and then people of color are held here but it's so normal like it is literally a part of the kind of cultural stitch that is the experience down here um but with that kind of drastic overlay of this more stronger potent form of racism i found a very strong opposing sense of blackness mm-hmm. because there are people who just do not accept like this is how it is and that was absolutely thrilling for me because it allowed me, for one, to identify what my blackness looks like to me and then embrace it afterwards and be around people who are also doing it. Um, I'm not going to say people in the North do not and black people do not, but there's so like it's so nuanced and neutral in a lot of ideas about the racism that it's kind of easier just to stick around and not be so radical, quote unquote. But down here, you know, it's, it's sink or swim um that, so that, is, up, that it is yeah, <laughs> yeah the, being in the south has been wonderful in that aspect because it really woke me up to what was going on in the entire country and then the entire world in regards to like being black that's like that that's actually very interesting to hear i've always like wondered about that um because like even with just like the couple of months that i've lived in boston it's like one is very different i think like my perception of it my perception of it would be different if it wasn't, you know, like in the middle of like a Panasonic right now. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But I like the first thing I noticed when I got here, I moved into my apartment and uh, every like house down, like down from where I live, like everybody's got like Black Lives Matter signs and everyone's like, like super powerful and protest, like, and they're, and like people are like honking their horns because there are people standing by the the road holding up signs Mm -hmm. and then like but the more i was here i was like it's very strange because like ain't nobody black 
living here. Like we're we're all it was like y'all saying black lives matter, but like I don't see no black lives out here. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, performative in in some aspects. Yeah, but I think that's been an interesting dynamic because I think the overt versus covert covert when you put it on geographical scales is something that I'm like still learning about, but I think I was also first really introduced to in college as well uh, mm-hmm. cuz like growing up in Memphis like where the culture is like everything that Knoxville was Memphis is like the exact opposite of uh, and like super rough super grungy like pretty much everyone in there is black you know like most of the yep. white people that live in Memphis try to distinguish from the fact that they live from Memphis because they're like mm-hmm. oh I live in this like distinct suburb or something like that it's like okay we get it <laughs> we get it Kendra you have money like calm down <laughs> like you you live in this one area that like has all the money and is profiting off yeah. of the city like calm down um <laughs> wait what's that what's that one place uh Cordova right oh my god yes people are just like oh yeah I'm from Memphis and it's like where in Memphis? And they're like, oh yeah, I'm from Cordova. And I was like, you barely even come to the city. Like, <laughs> like calm down. That's exactly- People used to, used to kill me with that. Especially like, um, I know the last couple of years Memphis gone has gone through like a lot of because it's a very like obviously segregated city. Um, yeah. And so it's gone through this like major process of like trying to integrate quote unquote for a lot of things um but they haven't planned it structurally well and so it's more of like okay integrate and give us your buildings and then like y'all like go somewhere else (laughs) (laughs) and we're like but that's not what you said um exactly um and even at one point i remember a couple years ago like when they really like wanted to integrate some of the high schools like it was showing how even, and this was like, for me, starting to learn more about, I'm not like, I'm a very like social political person. Like I understand like social issues, how they impact, how they're politicized. But I started to understand politics by looking at the landscape of Memphis because Mm -hmm. everyone seems to think like, oh, if you have black politicians, like that's the way we can do this. But like Mm -hmm. a lot of the politicians in Memphis are black and like, not a lot has changed (laughs) Um, because it would just be like, uh, it also shows like how distanced they are from like actual racism and different things that like prioritize people's lives. I remember they wanted to combine two high schools and literally students were like, if you combine these high schools, like one, all these white people are going to be hella scared. And also Mm -hmm. you're going to integrate two schools that have two rival gangs. And like, it's going, it's going to pop off. (laughs) (laughs) that is ridiculous yeah. that is ridiculous but it, it's like it's it's seen everywhere now I, i'm glad i went to knoxville because i let him out i let him i i met a lot of people from memphis um and yeah I've, I've seen like how performative it is oh we'll get these black people in these offices and things like that and it's like okay sure the face is there but what's really in their heart and what are they really trying to get back to as far as black people goes and what, where the where the community needs help and for me, at least nine times out of ten, I see it's it's all smoke and mirrors. You got the man in the skin, but not really too much uh, actual work for Black people. Right. I'm curious for you um, after your experience, especially like Buffalo, then Connecticut, and then coming down to Tennessee. Um, I'm interested to know like what led to your decision of like wanting to one 
what talk about a little about your journey of like deciding to go to law school and then why like FAMU particularly? Mm -hmm. Um, so <laughs> deciding to go to law school, well, deciding to go to school in general. Uh, and my parents will be hearing this, so I apologize in advance. But I was just buying time. <laughs> I, I did not. All I knew after high school was like, I am not ready to work for anyone. Um, I am not ready to start a career. I don't know what I want to do. But if I go to college, that's four years of a guaranteed cushion of figuring out what I'm really trying to get into. Right, right. Um, and then the idea of law school came about when uh, at the University of Tennessee, they assigned me this random guy to be my academic advisor. Uh, we had a meeting, and my very first day was also his very first day. So I walk in, and he's trying to figure out how to power on that. his computer. <laughs> he's literally trying to figure out how to power on his computer. And he's just like, oh, uh, sorry, I didn't know um, what was going on. Uh, what do you need from me? I was like, how about this? I'll build my schedule. I'll email you at the time that I need you to sign off on it. Right. That's our arrangement. He goes, bet, easy. <laughs> Love it. Um, <laughs> yeah. But I, uh, I did not, I came into law school thinking I wanted to be a doctor. Or I came into undergrad thinking I wanted to be a doctor because I just binge watched seven seasons of Grey's Anatomy. And I was just like, oh, yeah, I could do this. Like, whatever. Two weeks in, I realized I am not pre-med material in the least bit. Can't do math. Can't do science. Can't do bio. Um, and I was just like, okay, well, I'm kind of screwed, like whatever, uh, <laughs> beginning, beginning of sophomore year of college, I'll go back to see the, the, the clueless man, I'll say, and he goes, all right, well, you're not good at anything like that. Uh, can you read and write? And I was like, I mean, bare minimum, but yeah, like, I <laughs> <laughs> and he goes, all right, well, you're going to try poli sci, um, uh, let me know how it goes. And, you know, at the end of the semester. And I loved it. Uh, started taking sociology classes and poli sci classes. And I was like, oh, shoot, like, I don't know what political scientists do after school, but I'm getting good grades. Like, this is going well. Um, and the idea of law school came about when my birth mother, my real mom, uh, lied on Facebook one day. And she was just out of the blue, unprovoked. You know, we hadn't talked in <laughs> months at this point. And she goes, my baby's going to be a lawyer, and he's playing on the University of Tennessee football team. Oh, two, no. <laughs> two, two huge lies, because I, for one, was not playing football. Uh, and two, I had no idea about law school at all, anything of the sorts. Never mentioned it to her. But following her little story, I was like, oh, well, what do lawyers do? You know, let me, let me go see what lawyers do. And so I looked it up and I was like, oh, okay, service industry, it's more than just what you see on TV as far as suits go and all this kind of snobby whatever. Uh, and I realized, oh, like, this is something I might be able to do, like, actually. Um, and the idea kind of just nested there. Uh, graduated with a degree in poli sci in 2018. Um, and then I went to the real world and I started doing campaign work. So I did campaigns for um, the ACLU, Doctors Without Borders, and Planned Parenthood down in Atlanta for a couple months. And then I was hired as a campaign manager to work for Richard Cordray in Ohio. Um, after working and making a little money, I was just like, I'm still not ready to be an adult. Like, right, right. this whole career <laughs> thing, like, <laughs> this ain't it, bro. Like, 
y'all paying me less than $31,000 a year. I'm struggling. This is not what y'all promised me. Uh, and I was like, all right, well, let me just go check out law school. Like I, I gotta, I need more time before I step into the real world. Um, and that's literally kind of what pushed me, uh, just not being ready for that. And then ultimately deciding that my services and what I wanted to do, which is really kind of be and work with people, um, was actually what lawyers could do. And they do so much more than just what the law is. And they're not literally guaranteed to be in court or anything like that. And I was just like, oh, shoot, like, I want to serve people the best I know how. I want to talk to people. I want to be in people's faces, things like that. I can do this and literally help someone every single day. Um, and that's why I chose law school. Um, I chose FAMU because, <laughs> because obviously, you know, uh, University of Tennessee, Knoxville, Go Vols is a PWI. Um, I what? hadn't been around. <laughs> yeah, shocker, right? I hadn't been around Black people since I was adopted. Um, I mean, obviously, like, you know, my best friends, a couple of us, a few dots stuck together throughout life. But from the ages of about eight to, at that point, 21, 22, I had just been immersed in and around people who did not look like me and having to play and be a part of systems that weren't necessarily benefiting me or made me comfortable. And so I was just like, I, I would like to go to an HBCU. You know, at that point, it's me getting to be around people who look like me and kind of understand me intrinsically. And I don't necessarily have to assimilate. I can truly be myself um, and literally just fit in. I don't have to be extraordinary. I don't have to smile at everyone that walks by. I don't have to make sure I don't look threatening. Like, people get it here. I'm just going to go to an HBCU. Right. Uh, I, ch I chose FAMU strictly because I hate being cold. Um, that's it. Fair enough. I, just, yeah, I, I really, really hate being cold because I actually applied to Howard as well uh, and a few other HBC law schools. But I was just like, I'm so done with winter. This is not for me. Like, why would I, why would I do this? Um, and that's why I chose FAMU. Um, went down the visit, fell in love instantly with the staff uh, and people who would eventually become my friends because it was almost like the teachers knew why it was so important to have black lawyers and black students. And it was like being chast, not chastised, but it was like being, and it's all professional, but it was like having your auntie breathe down your back. Like oh. someone from your family constantly being like, yo, you need to do this. Like, this is important. You can't cut no corners. You can't cut slack. We understand what this, that, and the third means to you, but this is what you need to do to be successful in this world, in this role, and why your job's important. Um, and I chose that. I needed the familial feel versus being like a number uh, and just being some law student in some big law school that's going to want you to go to some big law firm so you can donate a bunch of money back to the school. Uh, so, yeah, that was my long-winded ranting uh, law school journey. No, I, I appreciate it. It was, it was great. Um, do you... I love the bit where you were talking about just, like, it's not always about, like, being in the courtroom and, like, the fancy suits and stuff like that, of, like, actually being able to help people. So I'm curious for you at this point, like, in your law school journey, like, do you know what type of law you want to practice and, like, how you want to go about, like, helping people after you, after you graduate? <laughs> Yeah, so uh, the, the quick answer is yes and no. Um, and the, the longer answer is 
because of my own adoption and my own experiences through the court systems, I have a, a really deep drive to be back in that process. So I, I ultimately want to represent children uh, and families in court, uh, specifically adoptions and custody things, because I just remember how, for one, isolating it felt, um, having to sit through court proceedings where like your real mom's on the phone crying about like losing her child and your adoptive parents are just like, hey, like you're not losing him. He's just kind of like ours now legally, you know? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah right like you know it it always sounds worse but i remember being the actual child in the experience and how much um my own lawyer my boy kevin shout out to kev uh who he he was just like hey i'm here for you in the best interest of you as a child and he wasn't just playing lawyer he kind of was just like confidant and just someone who listened and was really really there for like me uh and at that age that was the first time that kind of ever happened. Um, and so I would like to be back in that situation uh, as someone who can deeply and like full understand and connect to the children and the families who are going through such like difficult, sticky processes because child and family court is, I mean, it, it, they always say, don't, don't lend family money. Don't do business with family. Uh, and that is exactly usually what child and family court is about. So um, that's, that's my goal, but I also would like to do some real estate work. And because I'm kind of like a floater, uh, I'll definitely be dabbling in, and really anything that kind of floats by and captures my interest, but my everyday work will definitely end up being with children. Ah, uh, love that more for, for the kids, for the kids. <laughs> yeah. I'm curious, uh, like pivoting just a little bit. Um, you i feel like we're all like trying to figure out this journey called life right not to get like Uh super like philosophical about it um but i guess for you in like the different journeys that you've had and sort of the different experiences that you've had i'm curious for you like how has that changed your perception of like what does it sort of mean because i feel like through all through a lot of the things that you described like also being socialized as a man and so having to be Mm -hmm. like nope, none of this bothered me. I'm totally fine. I'm rock solid. Nothing ever pierced yeah. the armor. I'm good. Um, I'm <laughs> yeah. curious for you what that, what your experiences have taught you sort of about what it means to be a man. And then also like, what does it mean specifically to like be a black man, like, and growing mm-hmm. up and going through your experiences? So it's, uh, it's very interesting because I've always gravitated towards women um, in all my relationships, like friendships, wise as well like all of my my friends have consistently been women like i have my boys but uh my sincere friendships have always been women starting with my mother uh my birth mother who raised me by herself and then my older sister who treated me like a child or like her own son um so for me my idea of being a man i didn't really under i didn't understand the concept until i got really kind of to college um and then after and then and then still developing today but my idea of being a man was very much um, quieted because I was very emotional as a child. I'm still an emotional man now. Um, Very emotional, very uh, affectionate, but like platonic affection um, and more expressive than like the men around me. Mm -hmm. And so that was very isolating because I felt like, okay, like there might be something wrong with me. 
and not even necessarily like sexuality wise i was just like oh like you know like why don't i fit in like why i want to grow up sometimes too but like I right right i don't know how, i don't know how to do it <laughs> um so what i came to realize and it really happened in college was like my brand of masculinity and being a man is just as valid as anyone else's mm-hmm. and that i really just needed to embrace it because i'd just be uncomfortable uh and and then in the same sense like and especially honestly meeting you and other men um at utk like brother black and i realized how like diverse we are as far as personalities go and what our masculinity quote-unquote masculinity looks like and it was really really like a breath of fresh air because it allowed me kind of to take off the 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 blinders and this macho attitude i carried around because you know i'm i'm not tough dude <laughs> like like I, i'm not tough i i'm not um just i'm not shy from my emotions i'm not i cry quite a bit dude like it is what it is like i same, know who i am emotionally. <laughs> and it used to freak me out but um now i love it dude i feel I feel good. I feel better that like I'm not pent up uh in, in hiding who I am. Um so my my idea of masculinity's been a bit different and evolving, but it's definitely been something where I'm just like, it is what it is. Like it exists for a reason. Um and once I understood that, I started to weaponize it. So I'd be around guys who wanna grow up and they wanna be like, yeah, like we're da 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 and they say like these really just kind of hyper sexualized, hyper masculine and homophobic things. And then I'll just lean into like my affections a little bit. And, like, dude, bro, I love you, man. Like, what's wrong? You know, like, how are you? Are you sure you feel this way? And then like, it would just freak them out. Right. Because for whatever, you know, reason they had in their head, they think either I'm coming on to them or the kid's just weird. Um, so uh, masculinity is a very funny thing. I, I, I'm not even sure necessarily what it means. I just kind of know what it feels like when I exude it, if, if that kind of makes sense. No, that that definitely does make sense. I actually very much appreciate like your description of it because I feel like it not only affirms but also validates a lot of experiences like I know I've had, but also like other men that I've talked to, is, especially other like black men, because I feel like growing up, um, people really think it's funny uh, because I'm like like we we've seen each other in person, we know what each other yeah. looks like. Um, because I'm so tiny, people are always very surprised by how strong I am. And yeah. I tell people, I was like, oh yeah, I used to like work out a lot. I used to be on the football team, but like prior to that, I am also really strong because when I was little, people used to pick on me, and especially like my mm-hmm. cousins, and I would cry, and then my cousins would beat the shit out of me. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so exactly. then it became to this point of like, okay, like. I can't show this type of emotion. So like, let me like start muscling up and like try Mm -hmm. to like build up this like sort of defense mechanism, Um, which I think in the long run, it's like, I mean, it's, it's fine. Like I'm like, okay, like I am able to like take certain things because like, if you ever been to Memphis and like know people from Memphis, like we're very sarcastic. And so I think that made me like, it gave me like some tough skin, but I think also at the same time, like, it sort of like cut me off from a lot of like really important, like how to process certain emotions and different things yeah. like that, um, which I'm now happy to be like moving into a space where I can finally start doing that. Um, mm-hmm. And it's just like looking back and I'm just like, why did we like feel like all this stuff is weird? Cause I remember like, even when I first came to UT, 
uh, I was so used to hanging out with women and like being with women because like they were my best friend. Like they were the people I felt like because of my relationship with my dad, which was just like very like, oh, you not only need to be muscular and tough. And like my dad comes from the military, but also like my dad grew up HBCU in the 90s, like is Mm -hmm. an um, proud member of Alpha Phi Alpha Fraternity Incorporated. (laughs) So like for him, it's just like, you not only need to be a strong man, you need to be a strong black man. You need to be like revolutionary in your mind and all this stuff. And like there were points where I was like, dad, I just like, I'm not, it wasn't that I didn't care, but I was like, this is not the way to get me to care. <laughs> exactly. exactly. And so, like, even, like, when I first got to UT, I remember one of the first experiences I ever had. I remember I was standing in line, and I was talking about, like, the fact that I really love listening to Lady Gaga, which, no shame, she's amazing. <laughs> um, and somebody asked me, and they were like, Deshaun, like, be, be real with us. Are you, are you, like, gay? Or, like, are you, like, bisexual? And I was like, because I like Lady Gaga? Like, is that the, is that the threshold? <laughs> Is that what we're doing? (laughs) And and then obviously having to deconstruct a lot of other things of like how it's constantly like I feel like we put straight men against like gay men and like always for gay you're like not as much of a man and it's like well that doesn't really make any sense like (laughs) um but yeah that like masculinity in and of itself is just just wild just it is absolutely wild um because I think. I think we do ourselves a disservice by trying to quantify uh, or, I guess, qualify what we don't even necessarily understand about ourselves. Because there's not something I can think of that's inherently just like super masculine. Um, yeah, like oh, you do sports and there's football and things like that, but like, like what what about that is so masculine? Like, what do we? What is so intrinsically? I know that guys do it and like oh yeah, the the but. I don't know. It, it's one of those things I'm trying to figure out how to capture uh, and understand. Um, but I also think because of the idea of masculinity, I think it would do men more of a service if we actually understood what, or not even understood, but like tried to lean into our own femininity. Because it's a spectrum, right? You, you, you dance along the spectrum of masculine and feminine. Feminine, being hyper-masculine, we understand is absolutely not it. We are living in a world that's kind of like the 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 waste away of those kind of ideas and actions uh but being or experiencing and, and appreciating what you consider feminine has been absolutely life-changing for me um just in the sense that like i think i know myself more mm-hmm. and i relate to people more authentically um because i don't care what anyone says i think women have better friendships than men um <laughs> a lot of men's friendships are facades in the sense that we just don't address certain topics uh, our friendships are so long lasting because we don't test them with anything. They're very much one dimensional. And that's the reason why a guy can have a friendship from age 13 to 67. It's because you don't challenge each other. We don't ask each other certain questions. Uh, and if we hurt each other's feelings, we just get quiet until one of us forget. And then we start hanging out. Right, <laughs> right. right. <laughs> or, you know, uh, like we then tried to, uh, I know a very, I was reading uh, a book not too long ago where a woman was describing like, teaching her son to like that her son is being socialized to like when you're when you experience violence like to retaliate with violence and so like when someone makes fun of you your next thing i feel like in male friendships it's like oh they just made fun of me let me like also crush their feelings (laughs) and then we'll eventually be so sad it's like okay we're fine we're we're just not (laughs) and it's just like there's got to be a better way to do this this is not okay (laughs) we're both emotionally demoralized so i think we're even (laughs) it's like okay we can we can keep being friends now um Mm -hmm. 
<laughs> it's just, it's very it's very wild i think and i i also agree i think like more men definitely need to understand like sort of that that spectrum and understanding that like whole being a whole person um includes like embracing some elements of your femininity and stuff like that and like that it's not a sign of weakness i remember even having that conversation like with my dad and i remember like one of the things i love to do i'm very bougie and i'm very bougie about wine uh Uh, i love wine and so like there are some i remember the first time i took my girlfriend home uh we ended up not going to like a basketball game or something like that because we were going to go with my mom my mom didn't feel like driving and i was like my my mom just got a new car. She's not gonna let me drive her car. So I was like, "It's fine, mom. We don't have to go. Like we can just sit here, watch TV, drink some wine, and mm-hmm. it'll be like." And my dad, and my dad came in. He was like, "Oh, I didn't know y'all were having ladies' night in here." And I was like, "I'm sorry. I didn't realize you were jealous that we're drinking wine." He's like, "I'm sorry." And then he's like, "Go back. We go back and forth." And he was just yeah. like, "I get it, son. You're trying to embrace your femininity." And I was like, "There's nothing feminine about enjoying wine. Like, <laughs> like I just like wine." <laughs> It, it really is that simple like you just like wine that's it you don't have to think beyond that i just enjoy wine you know like it's not that deep i love it, it. it it's wild and then i think uh i'm curious to hear a little bit of your perspective um and we can definitely dive more into it as the episode progresses but like knowing like what we sort of because I think like there's also these weird mechanisms that create toxic masculinity, like mm-hmm. like the scenarios we're talking about. But I think there's also like that weird space of, and not even weird, that like very intentional space of trauma that a lot of, especially like black men, don't venture into. And mm-hmm. I think about like everything from the murder of George Floyd to like Trayvon Martin, like Philando Castile, yeah. Freddie Gray, like so many like traumatized um, moments and constantly seeing this that I feel like it also shuts off black men from being able to like share their emotions in like a tangible way and like i think that is also something that like we are lacking in and so i'm curious to hear from you both like for our perspective and in thinking about one day when we have kids if that's like something that Mm -hmm. we are both interested in doing and just like seeing children and other black boys like growing up like what do we need to do i guess to sort of like change like this narrative that we sort of ridden for ourselves like what what do we need to do to be better black men and not just be trapped in this cycle of like telling other black men that they can't drink lemonade and like 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 all this other stuff uh i think we have to be brave enough to be vulnerable and truly look at who we are as individuals and as a collective um and get the help that we need, be it through therapy, I mean, honestly, really via therapy, um, but understanding like the vulnerabilities and addressing them, that becomes your strength over time. Um, I know for me, I was extremely distraught, right? When George Floyd happened, when Sandra Bland happened, and I cried at work and I left, and then I went home and I just cried to my mother because that was just way too much. And it, like, it, that was kind of the weight. That's kind of like the, can- the straw that broke Sandra's back for me. Um, but then after that, like understanding that there are so many systems and so many cycles that we participate in that uh, are adverse to us as black men, and then at, as well as adverse to us as black uh, people um, in the community. So I think therapy, absolutely. Being brave enough also to challenge each other as black men, um, because we, I really just don't think we do. We do not check and challenge each other enough um, for one in regards to 
being, I think, stronger about what it is to be black men and, and protecting black culture. And then as well as like protecting other communities of the black culture. Um, because I mean, we also, as black men, we participate in misogyny like crazy. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it, it becomes a cycle. <laughs> <laughs> it becomes a cycle where we're not, we're like harming people in our community, but we're also asking them to be on the front lines and when we're shot and when we're also, you know, whatever it is, like you got to support black, like look at, look at the short bald man. What was the name? Tory, Tory Lane. Oh yeah. Um, oh my God. <laughs> and Meg Thee Stallion, right? Like that for me was a shiny example of us as black men falling short because people were just like, well, what is this big old da 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 insert whatever kind of mammy, whatever stereotype they want to put in. And then they trying to, oh, well, Tory Lanez is a black man and the world tears us down enough and y'all, y'all coming to hit, why won't y'all defend him? Y'all just gonna believe this girl? Well, shoot, what's she doing to get shot? So what? Like, really? That's your, that's your response? I saw so much of that and I was like, are you serious? Yeah. Like, I think accountability is the most, it's terrifying, but it's the most beautiful thing ever because when you take true accountability, your actions change and you can actually see the trickle down effects of like where you started, what you changed and then how that kind of spread and impacted the world. Um, and then it, it, it terrifies me to kind of have children in a sense, because, uh, I think I've been very fortunate to have very open-minded and accepting parents and then friendships that have been so diverse and vast to where my mind has been opened up and my heart more so to everything else around me. Um, but when I, when I speak about certain things, I want to, I like, I want to put that caveat there, right? Like I've, I've had the, the idea to accept that, but. When it comes to having children, I'm afraid because we have so many systems fighting against us that are just outside of the black community that for us to, and specifically as black men, to make it harder on ourselves to grow up like emotionally mm-hmm. uh, and be responsible members of just like our own communities, uh, we are, we're going to have a weak structure, like consistently weak structure that is going to be susceptible to so many other issues throughout just the rest of our lives. Um, so I'm, I'm genuinely terrified, uh, but I know that I need to have some beautiful black babies and children. Um, <laughs> just because I think I've always, I've always wanted to be a father. Um, but no, not in the least, but I'm, I'm shy to the idea that like, I am terrified of what it means to see a black child and then know what the world, what, the, what our own community, what other black men may do or try to teach them about themselves, that's not really who they are. I feel like we just grow up, um, and once we decide to love ourselves, we're really just undoing what the world taught us to believe about ourselves. And we're trying to, like, really, what's it called? Excavation. We're trying to excavate back to our own identities and who we really are before the world and everything else turned us against ourselves. So uh, it's, it's, a very, it's a very terrifying idea. But I also think I'd have some beautiful children, so, you know. (laughs) I love that. It's like, uh, it'd be so scary. But they'd be so gorgeous. (laughs) They'd be beautiful while they're making it through all of this trauma. (laughs) No, I think think you raise a lot of, like, really good points and things that I've definitely thought about. And just, like, I I mean, on so many, on so many levels, especially, like, for me, um... I also have the added benefit of like right now, like me and my girlfriend talk about having children and my girlfriend is white. And so like, Mm -hmm. I not only think about like, just like 
the world sees them as black but then also like colorism within like the community and stuff like that because i remember very clearly like um i have like cousins that are a little bit lighter than me and then like also like people i went to church with are a little lighter Mm -hmm. and like i remember like the various terms that people would call them and everything like that. I'm like, this seems like it's not okay, but everyone's saying it. So <laughs> everyone's laughing about it. It's so like everyone's saying it, laughing, and like, are we are we just collectively saying this isn't okay, or we're just collectively yeah. laughing? I don't understand. Exactly. Um, but but yeah, I think um, I think that bravery piece though, and that accountability piece are, is definitely more important now than ever uh mm-hmm. because i think like we we have to step up and like make sure that we're pushing aside these narratives that are created by like we don't need to create like the space for more tory lanes and like exactly 50 cents and like all of these and, and i'm trying not to name just singers but like <laughs> and rappers but like i'm also just like they're the most problematic right now yeah. <laughs> And then, um, you know, there's the Cosby's and there, there's so many examples of us falling short, but the toxic side of our communities and may primarily being black men, uplifting them because they're black men. Um, yeah. I mean, yeah, you look like me. And of course, there's things we are intrinsically going to experience and understand about each other. But when you fall short and if I love you, I have to hold you accountable. Right. There is there is there is love and truly criticizing something. Um with the sense of like you're trying to make it better um and and that's what people fail to kind of accept about the whole idea yeah i agree uh let me i could get the offering plate and like move it around right now (laughs) Uh, what a beautiful sermon um before i get to i get you out of here though i definitely i definitely cannot have a podcast with you and not bring it up like i feel like yeah, ever since college, I definitely, and I think it still applies. Like even t- anytime I think of you, I'm like Dan the man, because <laughs> I think of like just like your social media presence and different things like that. And like sometimes, especially on Instagram, I feel like you. If like there was a poster series for like Black Boy Joy, like personified, I think that's <laughs> you. And so for I'm very curious, like how do you like for you? Where does your joy come from, and like how does that connect to like? For you, I know, like, you have a very cool fashion sense. Like, I know you very much, like, you're intentional about, like, working out and stuff like that. I think, like, what it, what gives you joy and, like, what sort of refills, refills you? What refuels me, honestly, and I've, I've, I really thank God and I appreciate this, but, like, I've always loved people. Um, I, I've always loved people and I've always loved, like, the small effects that you can have on someone uh, with any kind of small transaction. Um, so real deal, like, uh, and I've, I've thought about it as like, even since I was a kid, like I've just loved being around people, but also like leaving people. I, I believe you leave everything better than you found. Mm-hmm. That should be the goal. Um, and just kind of leading with love. Like I lead with, I try to lead with love. It's, it's obviously not the easiest thing to do, but right, right. I think leading and leading with love and being open to people's love. Um, and just having an open mind about everything around you it just leaves me in a constant state of wonder. Like I'm literally always amazed. <laughs> like I'm all like a cop, almost like a kid because like everything feels new all the time. It feels so special um, and, and almost intangible because for one, I realized and I remember what it was like to grow up without food and all these harsh environments, things like that. But I also greatly understand what it means to like 
to be content, uh, but also just appreciate what you're seeing around you all the time. Mm-hmm. So when you saw me, like, and I saw you, like, I would, I, I loved seeing you because for one, you always had great questions, uh, and then you always had that great old smile. It, it was just like, <laughs> Thank I you. wonder what, a, you know, I, I wonder what it is about Sean that's just like, like life's good. Like he, it looks like from the outside, life's good, right? Like he's happy in this moment we get to share. Like I just genuinely enjoy his presence. Um, and that goes with anybody. There's just something to learn and experience. Like I talk to anybody that will listen. Uh, most of the time I'm rambling because, you know, my thoughts always are everywhere, but I, I genuinely just try to keep wonder uh, at the forefront of whatever I do, because it's just, it's just, what's the next, it's so exciting. Like, what's next in life? Like what's going to happen now? Right. Um, uh, and I think that's I love that. truly where my joy comes from. Uh, I love that. That feel that fills me with joy. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I love that. Uh, before I get you out of here, one last uh, sort of thing I like to usually wrap up the pod with um, mm-hmm. is I, I call it the what's in your queue segment. So I know you mentioned you, you've been like torture reading for like law school, but yeah. I'm curious if, uh, and it can be TV shows, movies, books, anything you like want to recommend to the people that like you've been reading or plan mm-hmm. to read or just watch, <laughs> listen to, um, and just like, you know, put it out there for the people to also go out there and enjoy it. Mm, that is, that's actually a phenomenal question. What is in my queue? Um, I am currently reading How to Talk to Strangers by Malcolm Gladwell. Ooh. It's a book uh, about talking to strangers and what we, what I think his line is, uh, what we need to know and understand about the people we don't know and understand. Uh, so the world around us. Um, so I think talking to strangers by Malcolm, talking to strangers by Malcolm Gladwell is something amazing. Um, and then outside of that, I am a huge cinephile. So I'm going through every visually stunning movie that has really kind of come out. So up next is uh, Blade Runner 2048. Um, I just, uh, I'm excited for that. And then I also just finished watching, I love Teenage Rom-Com from like the early 2000s, late 90s. So I just finished Dawson's Creek. And if anyone's watching. Oh my gosh. Yeah, huge fan. (laughs) I love, I love that. I'm not a big Dawson's Creek creek person uh but yeah i i I could i I see where you're coming from i like it i like it um i think right now for me i am in the middle of uh, so i i try to balance it out with two different types of books so but i'm Mm -hmm. reading uh the purpose of power by alicia garza um one of the founders of the black lives matter movement and it starts off Mm -hmm. Like she, like i've recently been watching a lot of interviews for her of her um and she's just like such a great orator and speaker but also like yeah she she's like the type of person she gives me the same energy that like a michelle obama gives me like oh. there is fierceness there like and you know yeah. that like she is like she definitely is not afraid to like say what she feels but like yeah. there's so much like positivity and joy mm-hmm. that radiates from her so like i even like look at her and i'm just like oh my gosh <laughs> like i just want her to give me a hug i'm like oh, yeah everything will be okay <laughs> um but yeah that's sort of like where where i am i highly recommend that to both to you and to the people out there it's a it's been a good read so far um but dan thanks for sitting down with me um uh, i'm gonna let you get out of here and then we're going to toss it up and do a roundup and wrap up for me. So thanks for tuning in, folks. Absolutely.
All right, party people, thanks for tuning in for our most recent episode. You probably noticed that there was not a news that you missed segment, and that's because, quite frankly, and this is not a joke, the world's fucking on fire. So I didn't feel like bringing in any more news because I feel like I'm already overwhelmed by the news and I feel like a lot of people are, are overwhelmed by the news especially considering that it has not been saying anything good lately so we're just going to leave it as it is um, next episode will feature the news that you missed segment and to make up for it I'll definitely be posting some various things across social media for people to be reading, keeping their eye on and just sort of making sure that they still have their head in the game um, the only post wrap up segment I have is go out and support black business, um, ranging from everything to local black businesses in terms of coffee shops or anything like that, um, to your internet businesses, whether it be shoe apparel companies like my wonderful friend Chima, who is a part of Grind City Kicks, or donate to a local bail fund for protesters or certain cities where a lot of folks black folks and people of color are out there doing the hard work and so if you have a little coin in your pocket don't feel free to donate um which is it's definitely okay if you're not able to but some some show of support is definitely okay in in this one um and just making sure that you're taking care of yourself taking care of your people showing love and one thing that I definitely felt like Dan taught me in a short span in this episode was remember that joy has to be a part of the process too. We can't get to freedom. We can't get to any form of abolition without joy. So just remember that and make sure you're taking care of yourself and taking care of each other, taking care of our wonderful freedom fighters and black women and black trans and queer folks who are doing so much of the heavy lifting and let's make sure that we're, we're doing that work. <laughs>